0: Welcome to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast, helping people who want to improve their health and change their mindset around food so they can live the life they were designed and called for. I am your host, Adrian Delgado, and in this podcast, you will get practical nutrition and health tips for both you and your entire family. I am a registered dietitian. I'll give you step-by-step plans to reach your goals, easy tips to stay motivated, and my favorite recipes that I know you will enjoy too. Nutrition and health doesn't have to be boring or grueling. Let's enjoy the journey while we strive to reach the destination together. So grab your water bottle and notebook because it's time to get started. When was the last time you were at your doctor for a checkup? If you're listening to this podcast as it's released, we are still in the middle of COVID-19. And so a lot of us have not been to the doctors for a physical or a well check, but for some of us, we haven't been to the doctor for a physical or well check, not because of a pandemic, but because we just don't go to the doctor. And so today I wanted to discuss with you the importance of getting your checkups And more importantly than that, today I want to talk about your lab work specifically. See, for so many of us, we think of going to the doctor only when something is wrong. But going to the doctor for these well checks and for these physicals gives us a baseline of information so that way if and when something does go wrong, we are able to identify it more quickly because it is out of our norm or it is not... Um, it's not, nor like I said, it's not normal for us, we're exhibiting symptoms. And then if the doctor runs blood work, which is a typical first step, we can see, oh yes, look at these numbers. These are outside of your norm or your typical. And so I've been having this conversation with a lot of clients lately. And usually when I have these conversations often, it's a tip off to me that Maybe we need to do a podcast episode about this, and we can really dive in and understand the importance of these lab values instead of just looking at it as a routine procedure, but never becoming invested in the information. So that's what we're going to do today. We are actually going to jump in to lab work, and I want to explain to you why it is so important for you to understand and to know your numbers. So when we talk about our diet, there's typically three things in particular that generally cause us issues, challenges, hiccups, whatever you want to call it. Sugar, fat, and sodium. And the reason why these cause us so many challenges is because they're so tasty. They taste good. They ignite. They excite all of our pleasure centers. And so manufacturers know when they include these um, ingredients into our foods, we are going to enjoy the taste more. And when we enjoy the taste more, guess what? We buy more. It's just simple math. And so yes, a once in a while treat is not a bad idea, but when we eat foods that are high in sugar, fat, and sodium over and over and over again, well, eventually that can impact our blood, our blood work. So I wanna break down those three ingredients today and I want to show you specifically how they can impact your lab values. So let's start with sugar because sugar always gets blamed for everything. And sugar is a pro-inflammatory. It does cause issues, but specifically I wanna talk about glucose and A1C. So glucose is a measure of how much sugar is in your blood at that moment in time when they prick your finger or when they take a blood sample. Typically, when you're getting your lab values done or your blood work done, it's first thing in the morning because we want to see how well is your system working when it doesn't have food in it that could potentially... Um, change up the numbers. okay? So we want to try to eliminate as many variables as we can. So when we're looking at your blood work, we can see are your organs working properly? And so when it comes to sugar, we want to look at the organ, the pancreas. The pancreas is responsible for clearing sugar out of your blood and moving it into your cells so you can use it for energy. That's the function of insulin. And insulin is produced by the pancreas. Okay, so let me just back that up again in case that was confusing because I I said it a little backwards. Um, I gave the information backwards. The information was accurate. It was just backwards. So your pancreas, it's an organ in your body, produces a hormone called insulin. And insulin's job is to get all the sugar out of your blood and move it into your cells for energy. If your pancreas is not producing insulin well, or your insulin isn't working efficiently, then your blood sugar could be running high. And how we test that is we look at your glucose levels. Now, a healthy fasting glucose level is anything under 100. Anything over 126 could be considered diabetes. And anything in between 100 and 125 is considered pre-diabetes, or you may have heard it as insulin resistance. And there is a reason why these numbers are so important. Because if you do not know what your numbers are, you do not know when there needs to be change. I have seen this over and over and over again. So many times I have clients that go to the doctor They get their blood work done and the doctor or the nurse calls them back and says, everything's fine. And so when they come in to see me as a client and I ask them, what is your fasting glucose level? They just look at me and they're like, I have no clue. The doctor said it was fine. So I didn't worry about it. And I, if there's nothing else you get from today's episode is that's not a good enough answer. You need to know your numbers. Nobody is going to care more about your health than you and doctors they don't mean any ill will and nurses don't mean to harm you but they are busy and they have got a large caseload of people to work with day in and day out and so they're not necessarily going to review every single lab value with you they are just going to tell you good or bad move on but it has been my experience that too many clients are coming into my office. They think their blood work is fine because that's what the doctor told them, but they are actually pre-diabetic. And this makes me crazy because if you don't know something is wrong, you aren't going to do anything to fix it thank goodness they came into my office and brought their blood work with them so we could review it so they can understand what's going on in their body so they know the why behind why they need to make changes. If you come into my office and your blood sugar is, your fasting blood sugar is 120, you and I are definitely having a conversation about that. I'm not going to tell you you're fine because technically you're not diabetic. No, I'm going to tell you we need to do something radically different because you are half a step away from becoming diabetic. And I don't want you to be blindsided when you get routine blood work done and the doctor says to you, oh, by the way, you're diabetic. And you'll be like, what? Where did this come from? You said I was fine a year ago. Now all of a sudden I'm diabetic that doesn't just happen. There are warning signs along the way. And that's why we have these like pre, um, where you're like pre-diabetic or pre-hypertensive or pre-hypercholesterolemia. Like there are these ranges that alert us that, hey, the body is struggling to keep up. Let's do something different and see if we can get this back on track again. And so I want you, if you've had blood work done recently, I want you to pull those numbers out and I want you to look at them. Again, a healthy blood sugar, meaning your pancreas is working great, your insulin's working great, is under 100 and that is fasting. Anything over 126 is diabetic and anything between 100 and 125 is pre-diabetic. That is where your pancreas is waving the white flag and saying, hold up pay attention to me, I'm struggling. And then you can have a conversation with a dietitian about ways to improve that number, because there are absolutely ways that we can monitor and treat that using food. The second number I want you to be aware of when it comes to sugar is a number called A1C. And this is a measure, um, More specifically, the terminology is a hemoglobin A1c. You may have heard of it that way. Typically, in younger people, the doctor is not measuring your A1c. This is something I see more when you're middle age or older or have a history of diabetes in your family. But the A1c is a much more accurate reflection of your blood sugar. Your Your A1c is a measure of how much sugar is attached to your red blood cells or you may have heard the terminology glycolated hemoglobin, how much sugar is attached to red blood cells. Your red blood cells change over every three months. And so a doctor may measure your A1C to see how much sugar is attached to your red blood cells because that gives us a much more accurate reflection of what your blood sugar is versus a snapshot in time when we took a random test um, through blood work. I once had a client who was getting chemotherapy, but if her blood sugar was too high, they would not give her her chemo for the day. And so she would check her blood sugar before she went in for treatment. And if it was high, she doubled her diabetes medications. And I just about lost it. I covered my ears and I'm like, la, 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 la. I'm like, don't you dare tell me that. You can't do that. You can't take double your medication. And she's like, sure I can. I want my chemo. The problem with taking a snapshot in time, checking your blood sugar, doing a finger prick is it just gives you information at that one moment in time. It doesn't give an average of what your blood sugar is like the rest of the time. Just that one snapshot in time. And so for this lady who was doubling up on her, on her diabetes medications to get her chemo, when she would go in and they do a finger stick, her blood sugar's low. They're like, oh, you're great. Let's give you your chemo. When in actuality, her blood sugar was terrible. It was terrible. And that is the limitation of a glucose. It only gives you a snapshot in time. It's like taking a photograph You know, everything, it's like if you came into my house and I knew you were coming and I cleaned up everything and I made my house look amazing and beautiful and, you know, clutter free. In that moment, you walked in, you'd be like, wow, Adrian, you have your act together. Look how clean your house is. How do you do it? But let's, (laughs) if you don't tell me you're coming to my house and you just show up, 99.9% of the time, you're going to see shoes all over the floor. You're going to see papers on the floor, wrappers, because my kids don't know how to throw anything away. You're going to see books thrown everywhere, covers on the sofa. The cushion's probably off the sofa. You're not going to get a true representation of what our house looks like 99% of the time. You're only getting a snapshot and so the A1C, what's beautiful about an A1C number is it doesn't lie. You can clean up your act, you can take medication, you cannot eat the night before, and you can get a beautiful glucose number. But an A1C, it doesn't lie. And so for a lot of doctors, we put a lot more faith into an A1C number than we do a glucose because we know glucose can be... Um, It can be so variable depending on what you did or what you ate or what, um, or your circumstances. And so you may have had an A1C lab drawn uh, in the past or recently. And if you haven't, it probably is coming soon. But I want you to understand your numbers. So a healthy A1C is anything less than 5.6%. Anything over 6.5 is considered diabetic. And anything in between 5.7 to 6.4% is considered prediabetes. So again, pull out your lab work if you've had it done. Check to see was there a hemoglobin A1C count tested and if so, what are your numbers? Do not just let it up to the technician or the nurse and a phone call that they left you or a voicemail that they left you and said, everything looks fine. That's not good enough. I need you to get the numbers yourself, download them on a portal, have the office fax them to you or email them to you, whatever their protocol is, pick it up. But you need to know your numbers. Not only for now to know if there's something you need to change, but also in the future as we age, guess what? Our pancreases don't work so great. Our heart doesn't work as well. Uh, Our kidneys are start to fail a little bit because they're old. And so if something is off, you want to be able to measure against the standard when you were healthy to know, hey, this isn't my normal. Something's going on. Do we need to investigate further? So those are your numbers for sugar um, that I want you to be aware of. Next, I want to move over to fat and cholesterol. Again, numbers you need to know. So total cholesterol should be under 200. Okay. Now, total cholesterol is made up of a a few different components. And specifically, I want to talk about your LDL and your HDL. So your LDL cholesterol, we want to be low. So always think of L low. We want that number to be low. And we want your HDL cholesterol, we want the H to be high. So that's just an easy way to remember it. You want the LDL to be low. You want the HDL to be high. I'm not going to get into what each of those cholesterols are and the function of them Uh, in this particular episode, because I want to just keep it to the numbers and being more specific today. But in a future episode, I will get all into why we need to um, change the numbers, what's going on in our body from a physiological standpoint. Again, if you understand the why, you're more likely to make change. If I just tell you, hey, lower your cholesterol, because it's a little high. Okay, well, I don't really have a connection to that. But if I understand what's going on in my body and how my food choices or my, my uh, lifestyle is contributing to those numbers, yeah, I can get behind that and I can make the change. So you want your LDL cholesterol to be under 100. Your HDL, this actually is dependent on your gender. If you are a man, you want your HDL to be over 40 But if you are a woman, you want your HDL to be over 50. And that's because cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of women. And so we need to be extra cautious and make sure that our heart and our cardiovascular system is in phenomenal shape to keep us healthy and alive. Now, when it comes to lowering your LDL to try to get it underneath that 100 number, This is typically reflective of how much fat, specifically saturated fat, is in our diet. Saturated fat comes from animal products. So your meat, your cheese, your eggs, um, your palm oil, even coconut oil is a saturated fat. Anything that is solid at room temperature, is a saturated fat and has the largest impact on your LDL cholesterol. LDL cholesterol is a direct reflection of how much inflammation is in your body. Now I will say that some people just have a genetic predisposition to high cholesterol. I tell these people they have overachieving livers and that is just something that hereditarily has been passed down to them from their parents. And there's not a ton you can do for that. Yes, you can absolutely take responsibility for your diet and your lifestyle. But if you have an overachieving liver, there's not a ton you can do except for make sure you're eating a healthy diet, exercise, move your body, keep your stress levels down, uh, moderate alcohol, no smoking. You can do what you can do. But if it's high, it's going to be high. When it comes to HDL, and how do we increase or raise your HDL to be in the normal numbers, to be over 40 for a man or over 50 for a woman, that comes down to exercise. So guess what? We are not getting away from diet or exercise anytime soon. And if you want a healthy heart, you need to be doing both. I typically go over the physical activity recommendations with my clients. And for just cardiovascular health, just for heart health, we need to be exercising 150 minutes of moderate activity a week. 150 minutes per week of moderate activity, or 75 minutes of vigorous, just for heart health. And I can't tell you how many people aren't even getting to those numbers. I always tell people, if you want weight loss, you've got to double that. So when people's eyes get really large, when I tell them 150 minutes of moderate activity a week, just for heart health, and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm not even anywhere close to that. But the real reason they're coming to see me is for weight loss. Oh, that's a hard conversation. But here's the deal. You don't have to go from zero minutes to 300 minutes overnight. You can absolutely incrementally increase until you get to a healthy place. And dietitians are great resources to help you with that, Okay, So we want our total cholesterol to be under 200. We want our LDL to be under 100. And we want our HDL to be over 40 for a man and over 50 for a woman. Now, there's also this other piece of data that I like to look at called your cholesterol ratio. Now, for some people, their cholesterol might be a little high. But here's the thing. Your cholesterol could be high either A, because your LDL is too high, or B, because your HDL is too high. When you're talking to a person that, you know, is very active, um, you know, works out a lot, their HDL levels may not be at 50, they might be at 80 or 90 or even 100, And when you have a very high HDL, it can throw your total cholesterol number way off to the point where it looks like you have an unhealthy cholesterol value in your body. And so what we like to do is we like to look at a cholesterol ratio. And when we talk about cholesterol ratio, we look at your total cholesterol. So whatever that number is, and we divide that number by your HDL. Okay, I'll repeat that. So when trying to figure out your cholesterol ratio, you take your total cholesterol and you divide it by your HDL. And that gives you a number. Now, ideally, we want that number to be under five. That is considered healthy. But optimal cardiovascular health is closer to the three, 3.5 range. Anything over five, puts you at risk for cardiovascular disease or heart attack. Okay, so again, look at your numbers. Is your cholesterol high because your LDL is so high? And in that case, that is problematic, and we need to absolutely bring attention to that and make some dietary changes right away. Or is your cholesterol high because your HDL is so high, because you're actually in really good health and your numbers are in a good place and we don't need to address it with a statin or um, other type of medications. Again, important to know your numbers so you can be an active participant in your care. Doctors take on a lot of responsibility. They see a lot of people in a very short amount of time every single day. This is not a slam on doctors. I love working with physicians. When we collaborate with them, that's when we see the best results in our clients. But again, you need to know what they are talking about rather than just taking it for their word and assuming that it's correct. I've had way too many clients in my office with blood work that was not okay, but yet they were told it was. And again, if you don't know something is wrong, you're not going to fix it. All right. So we talked about sugar. We talked about fat. The last thing I want to talk about is sodium. And probably the biggest thing that sodium uh, impacts is our blood pressure. Now, this isn't going to be on a blood work per se. This is going to be um, something that you would do at your doctor's office and at your, um, or at your physician or if you're at work, and they, they check your blood pressure as part of a health initiative. But ideally, you want your blood pressure to be 120 over 80 or even below that. That is a healthy blood pressure. Hypertensive or high blood pressure is anything 140 over 90 or above. Okay, so again, 120 over 80 is considered healthy. In fact, we want that to be even a little bit lower if we can. I think even 110 over 70 is considered optimal. But anything over 140 over 90 or in that area is considered hypertensive high blood pressure and this number a lot of people are directly affected by sodium i think the last time i did some research the average male eats close to 3500 to 4000 milligrams of sodium that's average that all that number average or i should say that word average baffles me because I know how much sodium we eat and how much sodium I instruct my clients to eat. And so if 3,500, 4,000 is average, and I'm telling my clients to eat closer to 2,000, or, you know, if they're middle-aged or have a history of high blood pressure, even 1,500 milligrams, and the average is 3,500, that means there are people out there eating 5,000, 6,000 milligrams a day to make that average number what it is the biggest thing that you can do when it comes to lowering your sodium is watch how much you dine out. I would argue that 90% of the sodium in your diet does not come from the salt shaker. It comes in the types of foods you eat. And in this era, we are hyper-focused on things that are easy to prepare, minimal prep work, fast, convenient, cheap. We want to make our life easier so we can jam-pack more things in it. But we also want it to taste good. And guess what is the easiest ingredient to add to check off all those boxes? Salt. So these three things, sugar, fat, and sodium, absolutely affect our diets and affect our health. How you know if it's affecting your health is to know your numbers and so that is your challenge as we move forward all right guys so i want to do something a little different when it comes to our recipe for the episode and instead i want to give you some tips on how you can decrease the sugar fat and sodium in your own cooking For sugar, I specifically want to talk about baking because the holidays are coming up and this is typically when we do a lot of extra baking. And so what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to look at the recipe and I want you to cut the sugar by a quarter to a third. So look at the total amount of sugar and cut a quarter to a third out of the recipe And nine times out of 10, you're not gonna notice any difference to the taste or the flavor. And that's an easy way to reduce the amount of sugar in your diet. Now, please remember that honey still means sugar. I once had a client who told me that she made these amazing chocolate chip cookies for her father who was diabetic. And she's like, and they didn't have any sugar in them and they were the tastiest thing I ever had. I was like, really? what was in them? She's like, oh, it was whole wheat flour. It was baking soda. There was an egg. There was honey. There was walnuts. I'm like, oh, honey is sugar. She's like, no, it's not. It's healthy. I was like, well, it's maybe a healthier form because it has, you know, antibacterial and antimicrobial properties, but at its core, it still is sugar. It's just liquefied. So please do not get confused with honey and sugar being completely different ingredients, they are one of the same, just in two different forms. So I did wanna put that out as a tip. When it comes to fat, especially in baking, again, let's use that same theme of baking, we can decrease the amount of eggs that we use, which are a source of saturated fat, by making a flax egg. So in order to do this, you're gonna take one tablespoon of ground flaxseed, And you're going to mix that with two to three tablespoons of water. You're going to incorporate the two together and then you're going to let it sit for five, five to seven minutes until it thickens up. And then this can be used as a substitute for one egg in baking. Now I will tell you, keep it to baking. Um, I tried this once with a, a dish where you incorporated an egg, it was actually a um, oh, it was a pineapple stuffing for Easter last year because my son Jake was doing the vegan thing. And so I'm like, oh, I'll just substitute a flax egg. That did not work. It, the texture was really gritty. You need to use a flax egg in something that's going to mix well, like oatmeal or a baked good product that, you know, you're incorporating some of those similar textures, like a flour or a little bit of sugar or baking powder, any of those ingredients. And the flax egg will mix right in very simply, but that's an easy way to decrease the amount of eggs that you're eating, which will ultimately decrease the saturated fat. And then finally, when it comes to sodium, the only tip I want to give with that is be very careful in your recipes that ask you to season along the way. There's no reason to do that. You can just season at the end. When you season along the way, you end up seasoning with a lot of salt. And seasoning just sounds so much nicer than salt. Season your food. It sounds very pleasant and very healthy. When really it means add salt, add salt, add salt. So when you come across a recipe that asks you to season along the way, just skip over that nine times out of 10, you don't even need to add salt to what you're making until the very end to flavor as you, as you wish. But salt is a learned flavor. And so just like you have learned to enjoy it, you can also unlearn it. And by reducing the amount of sodium in your foods over time incrementally, you actually can decrease your affinity towards it and therefore start using less of it. Also, I'm a big fan of easy. Uh, So I tend to buy canned beans a lot because they're a great source of protein and fiber and our family enjoys them, they're healthy. Uh, But with canned beans comes a lot of sodium. So if you dump those beans into a colander and you drain them, that's going to get rid of about a third of the salt. But if you drain them and rinse them off, you can get rid of two thirds of the amount of salt in those beans. So that's a great health hack. Um, Also, I love convenience. I love fast, just like many of you. And so a lot of times I will buy those boxes of rice that only take eight minutes to prepare but I just throw out the seasoning packet because seasoning packet, again, means salt. And so it's an easy way to get that win where you can get a quick, fast, you know, brown rice on your table in less than 10 minutes, but without all the added salt that comes from that packet. Okay, so those are just two quick ways that you can reduce the sodium as well as watching how much you are seasoning along the way. All right, guys, I hope this episode was helpful. I would love to hear from you and how this has changed, you know, whether or not you started looking at your numbers, if you maybe haven't before, and what information you were able to find because of it. So if you are struggling, if you are finding that your numbers aren't where you want them to be, give us a call. We'd love to help you. We'd love to read those numbers with you and give you practical, tangible, yet effective ways at how to heal your body using real foods. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a fabulous week and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Nourish, Eat, Repeat podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please rate, review, and share with others so we can reach and help more people. For more information about nutrition, how to work with a dietitian, or about any of our programs, visit our website at bodymetricspa.com or you can find us on socials. We're on Instagram at Body Metrics Health or on Facebook at bodymetrics Health and Wellness Services. The book Nourish, Eat, Repeat is available on our website and Amazon in both paperback and ebook versions. Once again, I'm Adrienne Delgado and I'll see you next week.